So we're seeing that ISIS has decided to uh, kill 21 Christian Coptics in Egypt, uh, or actually Egyptians, in Libya. And they do so with this beautiful sunset at the beach somehow, but neither here nor there. The point is that they're killing Christians. They're persecuting Christians. They're slaughtering Christians. It's a, it's, they, they would love it to be a Holocaust of Christians. That's what they, they would love to wipe out every Christian out there. The why we'll get to in a moment. The most fascinating part of it, of course, is that Obama himself, when he, when he hears this, of course, they have to have some sort of response to this. And so they say, we strongly, in the most strongest terms, denounce the barbaric, the barbaric killing of 21 Egyptian citizens. Okay. So citizens, you understand, not Christians, citizens. Let's put aside the fact that had these been Muslims killed by at the hands of anybody else, uh, he certainly would have drawn attention to the to the Muslim nature of the of the victims. But he's not doing that here. So it begs the question: Why? And this is exactly consistent with everything we've been saying before about Obama having an affinity for Islam, and he cannot do anything but defend Islam. Okay, and that's putting the most charitable light possible on Obama. The most possible charitable light. Uh, the, the most extreme is to say that he's a Manchurian candidate and that he's in fact trying to uh, work for the radical Muslims to destroy America. Okay, so uh, I don't subscribe to that. However, I, I also don't know if I subscribe so much to just everything being so naive and he's only got an affinity for Islam and he wants to protect them. Uh, is it somewhere between? Yeah, perhaps. But it, it's disturbing because we've been talking about this consistently, how every one of his actions is consistent with our theory that he's motivated solely to defend Islam, one way or the other. In fact, I can't think of any situation, any sort of uh, event that has occurred where you can say, look, there, there it is. He pointed out uh, radical Islam right there. He, uh, he did something to, to fight people who... Um, were otherwise Muslim, and, and uh, you know, as Muslims, he fought them. You know, the best example you could have maybe is 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 what happened in Libya, but even then, he he fought from behind. Remember, he didn't he didn't take the lead in that one. That, that actually underscores our point. So, and he he couldn't he couldn't take credit for the death of Lib, of uh, Gaddafi. Um, and and then it goes on. I mean, it. it it's, of course, what he did with the red line in Syria, what he did with Iran, and, and how he fails to give any serious repercussions to Iran. All right, so you're getting this principle here, getting this theme going on about how everything has to be done in defense of Islam. Got it. But I really do want to know, how is it because, uh, that, that the Obama administration, when they decided to denounce the barbaric killing of the 21 Christians that we just talked about, how did that work? I mean, they must have had a meeting, right? We've got to send out a press release denouncing this, this uh, Mr. President. Okay, okay, but don't use the word Christian. All right. Uh, that seems to be the one thing that was consistent with, with uh, who they were, Mr. President. Don't you think we should say something about that? No, no, no. They're, they're citizens just like anyone else. Uh, the Christianity shouldn't have anything to do with it. But Mr. President, I mean, 
seriously, Mr. President, you know, you, you got to understand that these uh, ISIS guys, that that's why they killed them. And they, wouldn't, they, they weren't just grabbing anybody from the street. They were grabbing Christians from the street. Anyway, so you can see, just see that the long discussions that must have occurred by that. But, of course, Obama's saying, I don't care. This is what you'll do. And, and making it very clear. This is a, what we call a top-down instruction, where the entire administration has to follow suit from what the president's saying. Similar to the whole ISIL thing, right? ISIL does not roll off the tongue. ISIS does. <laughs> Everyone is calling it ISIS, or now Islamic State. But no, he still has to call them ISIL, as if everyone's been calling them ISIL all this time. Very frustrating. As if they call themselves ISIL, yeah. which they don't do. Good point. <coughs> no, no, uh, it's no basis in reality whatsoever. But he, he consistently thinks that he can change reality simply by telling you what reality is, right? That's very similar to what we saw in, uh, very recently with this this discussion, uh, the Islamic, on, on the conference on, on uh, not Islamic, of course not, this conference on extremism, violent extremism, that's what it is. And so he had this conference, and the idea is to explore uh, how horrible violent extremism is in whatever religion may be pushing it, or whatever cultish following may be pushing it, religion or not. So to, to therefore create the narrative that... Uh, Everyone's responsible for this. No one, and he actually said today, no, this is not unique to any one religion at any one time or any one place. Yes, it is, Mr. President. And all that matters is what is happening in this time. I agree with you that it doesn't matter where, but I can tell you it's happening. Good for today, 99.9% of the violent extremism is coming from radical Islamists, okay? Very frustrating. Um, but more frustrating is, is the notion that this man thinks that he can fool us all. That's what bothers me the most. To, to, when he goes out there and says what he will say. Now, look, we've talked about this before, but you, you'll still see these things happening all the time. And every single time, you can start betting on it that he will not say Anything, he will not use the word Islam or Islamic or Islamist in any context dealing with terrorism. Or, that, or any negative comment with context whatsoever. Yeah, even. yeah I, I think that's right. He just has to defend it. He has this, this ingrained association with Islam that he just can't knock down. He just, he just, it's just impossible for him. Now, that's, that's a lot about uh, Obama to some extent, but there's also um, the liberal mindset I want to talk about. As you know, we have this wild issue going on right now in the East Coast with this cold spell, right? And not only that, but this massive storm and snow like has never been seen before in, I guess, decades. And... You know, that's, that's pretty impressive. It's pretty cool. It's interesting. And the thing, of course, that it begs the question of is, is this, you know, what is it, 16 inches of global warming? Is that the idea? Is that what they say? And, of course, what, the, what they'll say is, oh, come on, Barack and, and Ari, you know that this is, global warming is really about extremism in, in the weather, right? It's extreme yeah. cold, extreme heat. 
Okay. Now, here's the thing I don't get. If the experts were so spot on and the, the, the debate is over and all those things, why didn't they say at the time the debate was supposedly over about global warming that, in fact, the debate is over about these extreme temperatures instead? Why didn't they call it climate change back then? Why, why didn't they say, look, our computer models are, show, are, are going to show, or they do show, that we are going to have extreme weather on both ends of the spectrum? Why did they choose only global warming? Could it be that they decided to revisit their theory and change their model? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. That's not a secret. But what I'm, what I'm surprised about is for those people that are so hell-bent on saying the experts say so, the experts say so, then, then doesn't it give them pause? Doesn't it raise at least one eyebrow, as I say sometimes on the show? Doesn't it raise at least one eyebrow that perhaps, perhaps they were mistaken? And if they're mistaken in this department, you know, now they're telling you they're, they're totally right, right? But if, they're, if they were mistaken before, then perhaps they're mistaken now again. Maybe they're, they're completely wrong on the extremes altogether. I mean, like we said before, liars always lie, right? So, I mean, people are always mean, lazy people are always lazy, selfish people are always selfish. If, if they're wrong before, if the computer model didn't work before, then why, why is it perfect now, right? Why, why do you have to caveat when I say to you, you know, oh, here comes 16 inches of global warming, haha, why do you have to mock me and say, no, it, it means extreme weather. Well, why did you call it global warming in the first place? Right? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's kind of that basic. And, and it's all lost in the discussion of global warming. But that's, you know, you can never accuse a liberal of thinking things through, as we say. I, I'm, I'm very frustrated with this. Um, and, then, and then to link the two issues, we constantly, the more choosing this word deliberately, the more extreme the behavior of ISIS, the more our elitists in media and the leftist political establishment tells us the priority has to be on global warming. It's so much more important. Yeah. I know ISIS is horrifying you with the immolation and they've gone from beheading one to now 21. And, right. they're, and, they're, and you know they have new and terrible things designed in their next videos because they always, like show business, have to top themselves. But ignore all that. Global warming is right. where your priority has <laughs> to be, no matter right. how crazy ISIS seems. And this is where the Obama administration thinks that it can control the message so that you, you follow what they want you to follow and they control the message. And that you'll follow along because, you know, the master has told us this is what we need to do. This is, you know, this is, uh, it, it really is like 1984, the, the book 1984. And I, I don't mean it in the big brother sense. I mean it in the sense of, you know, one of the many aspects of the book 1984 was that the, this, this government was constantly changing what you're supposed to be believing, right? And they also constantly change history as well. And, and literally the people would, would say to each other, what, are we, what do we believe today, right? And this, this evokes that book that, that, that they feel like they could tell you what you're supposed to be focusing on. I mean, obviously, it's still a free country. We can believe what we want to believe. But they're telling us, this is what you should do. And, and maybe they're not telling you and I, Ari, but they are certainly telling that to the media. 
Well, they are trying to do it in how you just described by using peer pressure. They're trying to take, essentially isolate people like us who free think and make us comply with how we conduct ourselves among our surrounding people, our peers, because of the pressure those peers will exert on us when we speak out of school about race relations or global warming or the welfare state or the intrusions That's of government so for our yeah, own really good pl plastic bags, low-flow toilets, or barbecue bans. Well, it's, it's a lot easier for them to deal with, and, and they want us to go along with the program because that program, you understand, allows Obama a pretext to change the whole world the way that he wants to, to, to regulate it the way he wants to. Um, now, the good news is they can only do so much. We, we now know that it's, it's uh, less than two years until he's actually sworn out of office, and that will be a wonderful day. And as I said before, um, he, we've got something in common with Barack Obama now. Both of us want him out. He, he wants out of this presidency. The last thing he wants to do is continue on. I mean, would you, as president, want to be uh, the president now presiding over a country where you have no real power other than the executive order that you try to issue from time to time? But you, you can't uh, dictate terms to a Republican-controlled Senate nor a Republican-controlled House. I wouldn't want to be president. You know, I completely disagree with you mm. because this is a man. You play chess. I think you've told me you play chess. I do. And if you have an opponent whose will is completely broken and that opponent is unwilling to move his pieces in a way that brings pressure on your king or queen, who cares what the electoral advantages or disadvantages are? The, the person you're playing chess with won't fight back. Uh, I don't know if I, I can't agree with that analogy because, uh, look, if, if he's in a weaker position to use, go back to the chess thing. Uh, he's on, use the white side of the board, okay? He's losing. He's on the white team. And uh, there's only so many pieces left. He's got a, a king and a pawn and maybe a one bishop left. He's not going to win this game. Can't win this game. The best he can hope for is to be chased around the board. If you've ever been in that position as a chess player, you know it's not a very fun time and you get nowhere, it's very frustrating. So he'll constantly be surrounded. He won't necessarily be checkmated, but he'll be surrounded all the time. He can't do anything with it. You can't accomplish anything with it. And I, I don't, you know, somebody like him, who's all about control, who's all about transformation of society and everything else, uh, advancing a, pro a progressive mindset, I, I see that this is going to be very frustrating for him, and, and he's trying to break out of it. You know, you, you see it. He talks about executive order this, executive order that, and uh, just just recently he's shot down on the uh, executive order for uh, illegal immigration. He wanted to give all sorts of credits and breaks to uh, to illegal aliens, and the Texas uh, district court uh, granted a, a, a temporary. Injunction, actually, a preliminary injunction against the, the president on that very issue. And he's very frustrated, very frustrated. He feels this is a horrible thing that this judge has done. Suddenly he's all about, you know, not, suddenly he's all about uh, judicial uh, activism. Yes, it, yeah, yeah. Now, now he's against judi judicial activism. Not that this is judicial activism, by the way, but it's, it's a judge simply telling him, no, you can't do that, judge, uh, Mr. President. Judicial activism means you actually try to promote and create a new law that is contrary to existing law, and it's, it's not a question of you actually deciding a, a case, you understand? 
but but so that's another example. And then he tries to, you know, he's going to issue the FCC rules, and he's going to try to throw his weight around one way or the other. But it's not going to work. And it's it's very frustrating for any president to be in that position, don't you think? Yeah, but this guy is not Bill Clinton. This guy isn't Jimmy Carter or Lyndon Johnson, where those domestic kind of issues of legislation, I think, matter. I think the fundamental transformation he accomplished in his first two years domestically, he knew those would be lasting effects. Common Core, uh, the number of illegal aliens who are already in the country that they're going to... That are already voting illegally, right. that are never going to be able to be expunged from voter rolls, and then the way he's destabilized the entire balance of power in the world by um, allowing, uh, encouraging, uh, facilitating all three Iran to go nuclear. I think you know it's almost Dayanu. It's enough, and yeah. he's sitting there going, "It's only a matter of time before Israel is gone from the chessboard." With a nuclear you're, Iran. You're saying that he, he will go as far as he can to create as much destruction as he can. Deliberate destruction. Deliberate yes. destruction with, with Israel particularly. And that uh, so long as he can, you know, get to the end of that, uh, the field goal or whatever you want, or any of those James Bond movies, right, where the villain is... is Finally trying, about to push the button. He's about to push the button and he's crawling there, maybe like like in the, the end of the Wrath of Khan, right, where he, you know, you don't want him to reach the, the destructive Genesis uh, machine, which is basically a doomsday machine at this point, and he's crawling... And will he reach it? And he does touch it, and then you realize, oh crap! You know, they, now everyone else has got to get the hell out of Dodge. That's what that's what Obama is doing right now. Is what you're saying? That's what I think he's doing. Yeah. Yes. No, it's an interesting. And theory. I think the wheels are. He knows so many of the wheels are so in motion. That's why he's as serene as as a little lamb. I I don't say that you're wrong. I and it's. I'm not saying that I don't want to believe it. I I don't know that there's enough evidence for that yet. But. But your point is an interesting one. I will say that um, he will continue to wreak a devastation right now. I think he'd rather be in a position where the Democrats still control Congress and the Senate. That way he can create much, much more mischief. That I'm confident about. But given that he can't control the Senate or the House, he wants to do as much as he can to transform, um, even knowing that he's, his hands are a little bit tied. But maybe you're right. Maybe he, he feels that he's kind of already halfway there. Uh, more, also, more, than halfway, yeah. more than halfway there. And going back to Iran, uh, an interesting point, he is so hell-bent on making sure that he gets a piece of paper to say that he negotiated with Iran, which it's a little too odd. It's a very odd process because he's telling Congress, hey, let me negotiate. Don't queer the deal, right? That's, that's basically what he's saying. Um, as if, you know, he really knows how to handle this. And, you know, I'm on the inside track here. And please, Congress, you know, it's nice that you're there and, and you have a role in government and everything. But shut the F up, right? I'm, I'm in charge here. That's what he thinks he's, he's in charge of. And, um, and, and he gets angry with them for, for telling for Danny to tell him how to negotiate or how to put pressure on Iran. Now, if that's the case, and this is my point from before, he seems to understand that sanctions upon Russia will work, right? That he's all about. And I know that when, in 1985, during the height of the sanctions movement against South Africa, he was for 
imposing sanctions against then apartheid South Africa, right? He understood those worked. But when it comes to Iran, oh, please, let's not, uh, let's not clear the deal, like I said. The last thing you want to do is uh, get them angry. Well, isn't that exactly what we want to do, Mr. President? Don't we want to bring them to their knees, just like we brought apartheid South Africa to its knees? Don't you want that? I, so that kind of goes to your point, Ari, that perhaps he's doing this purposefully and he's setting it in motion and he's doing whatever he can. I, if, I can't, if I can't do it this way, if I can't destroy you, Kirk, uh, by blowing you out to smithereens, well, then by golly, I'm going to blow up my own ship and, and have you die with me in the or process. Or make sure the Klingons get the de Genesis device and yeah. have the ability to launch it at you in the future. I do not think you saw the movie, my friend. Oh, I'm, I'm, He didn't give it to the Klingons. No, I'm saying in Obama's case, oh, I see, if yeah. Iran is the, the, the enemy entity that is going to get the, the doomsday weapon, it, you know, the, the deal that he doesn't want ruined is the ability for them to get their weapon and give him his piece of paper. Well, he's not an idiot. He knows the piece of paper is worthless. Well, maybe... So, so this is the question. Since we are using a Star Trek reference here, but in particular, The Wrath of Khan, that movie, which was really a very good one. That movie was, was a reference to Moby Dick and the uh, Ricardo Montalban, Montalban character, who was uh, Khan. Uh, he basically is... Uh, the, he played the role of Ahab. Yeah, and he, in fact, does Ahab's monologue at the very end of Moby Dick. Very much. He does, I yeah, stab at thee. Yeah. And he, and he knows he's doing it, but he, but he's consumed with anger toward Kirk. And he wants to destroy him because he felt he's seeking this revenge and he cannot, cannot get, get over himself in this process. And, look, I think there's a part of Obama, and I, and I hate trying to understand him so much, but he's such a small man. But small man can be very dangerous. And he, uh, he, he reflects small man thinking. That's my concern about him. And ultimately, I think that's what we'll call this, title, this podcast, Small Man Thinking. Because it's what it's all about. He acts like a small man. He, when he can't get his way, whether it's vis-a-vis -vis Israel or otherwise, well, fine. You know, I'm, I'm taking you down with me. I'll destroy you in the process while I'm going down in flames myself, right? Like the kamikaze pilots, right? They, you know, well, they'll just use their own planes as bombs. And I, and I think that's what Obama's doing right now. He's got, uh, he really has to figure out what's what. Now, another alternative to look at it, and, I, and I, there's a part of me that believes this as well. I think he really just doesn't like being president anymore. You know, think about it. This is a completely different paradigm. Think about, from his perspective, how he was considered to be the king of the world and everyone, nothing he could do was wrong and, and everyone wondered what did he write in, in his prayer that he put into the, into the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and, and uh, you know, what is, what is he gonna, what's his favorite music and what's his... Property of Islam, circa 2017. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that, that, that's for his prayer. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, what, what, you know, what is he? Everything about him was was so miraculous and so wonderful. And now that veneer has has faded, right? It's uh, we all know that he's a nothing. And, and as I said in my Sunday show, he came from the land of nothing, right? 
this is, and so now what happens when you're, again, this is the different paradigm, okay? I'm, 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 not, I'm not rejecting the other paradigm we just talked about. I'm saying another paradigm, and it's equally bad to look at. Kind of like an addict chasing a fix he just can't, he can't ever do it. acquire because there'll never be 100,000 people fainting in front of him. That, that's right. And he wants to, it's the last hurrah, or a has-been singer if you want, Right. And he's still trying to get that new hit record out, and no one's listening. You know, the, 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 the community has moved on, as it were. The whole audience base has moved on. And they're not paying attention to him anymore. And nothing he's done has succeeded. Nothing. And, you know, he reminds me on The Simpsons again. <laughs> There's this character called Gil, right? And Gil is... Is, uh, he's just this guy who kind of always has odd jobs all the time, and nothing he does ever succeeds. He's a real estate agent at one point. He's, and that doesn't work. He, he has to be Santa Claus uh, during Christmas time to make ends meet. That doesn't work. Uh, you know, he's a bus driver. That doesn't work. Every, and and he's, he's so pathetic. He still has a can-do spirit about him, which is a little different than Obama. But when I think of Obama, I think of Gil. You know, like, oh, gosh, Gil, Gil, good for you for trying, right? But nothing he's doing. So, so when he presents this new proposal for whether it's the FCC or the minimum wage or some sort of fair pay or some sort of new proposal, you know, we all know it's going to fail. It, and, and, and Obamacare is the ultimate train wreck. We, we talked about that before. It's still dithering along. It's still not providing anything. It's still creating havoc upon people's lives. And the embarrassment of the website, it's still resonating. This is the guy that, that's going to be the president for the next year and a half. And what a shame. What a shame. And from his perspective, he wants to prove to you that he's really a, a good guy and a, an effective guy. But maybe he himself has given up. That's my point. I think he's given up himself. And that's why I say I think that he on the one hand and we conservatives on the other, we finally have something in common. We, we're both, on both sides, can't wait to the end of his presidency. <laughs> and from Obama's point of view, he can't wait because he gets to be the elder statesman. Right now, he just... If, if he could be, if, if he could get out of the presidency right this minute, without being impeached, without being forced to resign, without any shame whatsoever, It'll just be past the end of his term and be yeah. the elder statesman who right, right. people look up to as the first black president. And oh, isn't it if he could do it right now, he would do it. I, that's what I believe. He would do it this moment, and uh, and then he can get to be that elder statesman, statesman, like writing books, going on a speech circuit, getting to tell the new president, whoever he is what he should and should not be doing and what he would do if he were still president and so on. And, uh, and then, then cavorting with important people, you know, like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and Reverend Wright and all the important uh, progressives, both in the black world and otherwise. That's, that's, what he, he, that's where he wants to be because that's where, first of all, the real attention comes. And secondly, maybe there's a little bit of money there too. And also probably the old community organizer in him longs for the exciting days. You know how when you're first starting out, even though it's a struggle because you know you don't have money and you haven't established yourself, it's exciting and fun because everything is new. Part of him probably longs for the days of being a Chicago community organizer where everything was just fresh and new and 
Yeah, I, I think there's wow. something to that. I mean, I, you know, maybe he, maybe he'll do something like uh, Habitat for Humanity, like uh, Carter did, right? Something equivalent to that. I don't know, but I, I, but I also, I also know that he can't stand all the cameras anymore. Uh, I, I think that he's got real friction with uh, Michelle Obama, and uh, something's going on there as well. Um, yeah, they've missed their like fourth Valentine's Day together. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's too confu- convenient, it's you know. And there's been a lot of talk about you know whether he's gay or not, and whether Michelle Obama's a man. And I didn't bring that up. I know, and I'm not, I'm not even, and I'm not going there, and I don't subscribe to it. I'm simply saying I think they they're just having frictions, and they don't get along for whatever reason. I don't care, but and I, I don't wish them a bad marriage. I simply think that there is a bad marriage going on. You can see it in their body language. I would not be surprised if they divorced right after the presidency. And I think that's part of why Obama wants the presidency to end. It allows him the opportunity, finally, to literally divorce her and, and move on. Um, and, and he'll drop her uh, like, a, like a caterpillar has to drop its cocoon, right? She served her purpose to him. And now it's done. Now he can be who he really is. And we're going to find out a lot of interesting stories. And it'll be very, very tragic when we do find these things out. All right, my friends. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about Obama and then a theme that I think uh, we find pretty interesting once we get back. So don't go away. We'll be right back. or real estate dispute, I strongly recommend that you call Barack Lurie. Barack, you recently handled a case where one brother was suing his two brothers, your clients. What happened? Well, Dennis, the two brothers struggled but succeeded to build three restaurants. But when the third brother returned from being out of the country for 20 years, he sued to get one-third of their business. He claimed an oral deal between them because he had once worked as a cook for them. So what did you do? Well, during trial, we got him to acknowledge certain key dates and to his complete lack of documentation. So when his side rested, we asked the court for what's called a directed verdict a motion that gets rid of a case after fatal facts come out during trial. And the court agreed, shooting down all but one of the brothers' causes of action. And we settled that one for a very small amount and excused the jury. And justice was done. My friends, you know that I trust Barack Lurie with my own business and other legalities. So to make sure a deal is done right, call him for your own legal issues at 866-575-8111. That's 866-575-8111. Fighting for what's right, Barack Lurie at Lurie & Park, 866-575-8111. item that uh, we focused on, uh, we didn't focus on, and that was that Obama is now engaging 4,000 more troops into uh, the whole region of Iraq and Syria and otherwise, and this time it's going to be, perhaps it's going to be small-time ops, uh, but it's going to be very interesting to see how he explains this. This is a, a man who pulled out every single man out of Iraq and said that this was, this was going to be just fine. And, uh, of course, never mind the consequences about that. And, and this, you know, Ari, we talked a long time ago about your idea called zero, year zero thinking and this notion that, uh, well, we, we don't have to learn anything from history. History has nothing to give us. 
and we just uh, decide what might work this time. We, we don't ask ourselves the simple question, has it worked before? What has happened in history before that might inform us now as to whether it will work now? So two very simple examples that come to mind right away is uh, capitalism itself, where people question capitalism and is it right, is it mean? Like, excuse me, it's the greatest force for good and innovation and the lifting out of poverty devised in the history of mankind. And we can show it to you. It's, it's right there. If you look at the time period from 1789 to 1929, uh, that, it's a fantastic example. The things, the, the things that we've achieved as a result, not just invention-wise, but health-wise and uh, prosperity-wise in every respect. But they don't want, they, they, the liberals want to ignore that. They, they only want to talk about what feels good right now, and that is, well, it seems like capitalism is heartless, and people might get fired, and, and that, that's not nice. <laughs> well, but this is why great things happen, is that you, you, you move forward. But they don't understand that. The other thing, as an example, and this is more of a micro level, is the, the notion of a stimulus. You, you, you keep on hearing about this or that country deciding to uh, infuse money by way of a stimulus, as if somehow it's actually a stimulus. They use the word stimulus and therefore think that they can fool people into thinking that it actually stimulates the economy. That's what they wanted to do, but it doesn't mean that's what it is, right? <laughs> so. I mean, it's a little bit like saying, uh, you know, this rock is a battery. I may want it to be a battery, but it's not going to deliver energy, right? It's only a battery delivers energy like a battery can. Okay, so you put a rock that, that's shaped like a battery into the remote control, it ain't going to work. And then you say, well, let's try this stimulus. <laughs> let's try the stimulus again. But that's what they do. They keep on throwing these stimuli that, that, don't work. It's never worked and never will work because they're not stimuluses in the first place. And uh, but they'll they'll still trot it out as if it's the first time in history. Okay, so year zero thinking, and this is what Obama has done when it came to the Iraqi pullout, isn't it, Ari? You have uh, his wishful thinking that everything is good and, and there's nothing in the history that's ever informed him about the dangers of pulling out completely in a very vicious area such as the Middle East. And now uh, we have ISIS on our hands and, and a resurgent Al-Qaeda as well and doing the horrific things that they're doing. And surprise, surprise, we now have to infuse a lot more men into, into the operations and try to just keep the ISIS bastards at bay. That's, that's all he can do. And, and he's doing a very fickle job of it. I mean, it's not, not a very good one whatsoever. I mean, let, let's hope for somehow that he sees the light. But of course he won't. He has too much cognitive dissonance, as we said before, when it comes to Islam. And it, it, it just kills him, the notion that he's actually going to fight Muslims. That, that hurts him too much. He can't do it. I, I, just, I think that's what operates him. That's what motivates him, and that's what informs him. All right. Um, I want to talk about something that is emblematic, and this is our theme today, emblematic about the very nature of big government and socialism. Now, <clears throat> you, think it, you take a typical liberal, and, and if you want, you can make it a left-winger. Fine, I don't, I don't care. You're a typical leftist. And you ask him, what's his vision 
of a world that he would prefer. And he'll say something along the lines of, I want more government programs. I want more government oversight. I want more regulations. I want uh, equal pay for equal work. I want this kind of regulation. I want that kind of regulation. It's a bunch of stuff that they want. It's a package of goodies that they feel will improve the lives of everyone around them. All right. Okay. And then, and, but, but they also have a great sense of, of anti-corruption, that, that the world should be very fair and that the laws should respect, uh, you know, everyone's rights. And they're right about that. They should. And that uh, it presumed in all this with all these, the big government that they wanted, with the big departments and the, and the massive regulations and everything else, presumed in all that is that the government will be honest, right? But what I'm here to say is that you can't have one with the other, meaning you can't have big government and hope for a corruption-free government. And if you want a corruption-free government, you can't have big government. It's impossible. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, in Argentina, the Kircher government has come under fire because it turns out that there is strong evidence that she has been hiding uh, information or trying to squash uh, an investigation against the Iranian government for its apparent participation in a terrorist bombing years earlier against the Jewish synagogue. And this prosecutor wanted to bring charges against the Iranian government. Um, and the Iranian government, of course, didn't like that. And so they put pressure upon Kircher, and Kircher said, I'll work with you. I'll, I'll put the kibosh on this investigation because we want this particular trade deal that we, we expect with Iran. Okay, so it was a sweetheart deal. Say you say you say to me, "Oh, come on, Barack, come on, Ari. That's, you know, these are South African, South American governments that uh, are not, you know, they're kind of not shady. quite, been, yeah, quite shady. That's the way they th they do things down there. But that's not the same thing here. Uh, it wouldn't be the same thing here, really. Why do you say that, my friend? In fact, it would be exactly the same. Exactly. In fact, it would be racist to assume it wouldn't, as if there's something wrong or different about South America. Uh, that's a good point. This is yeah. American government. Yeah, good officials. point. If 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 you want, if you want uh, big socialist governments, let that, then let's look at the big socialist governments. Yes. And ask which one of them is pristine and corruption free. The answer zero. Okay. You, you think France is a corruption free society? Uh, you you think that Sweden? And all these, these are big governments. Look, the, the reason why they have so much corruption is because the bigger the government, the more tentacles it has, the more it needs to protect itself, right? I mean, imagine if you want a, an octopus that constantly grows, you know, new arms, you know, not just eight tentacles, but, but nine and then ten. It just keeps on growing. And, it, and it, it's one area that it controls has to feed the other area that it controls. And so when one tentacle is doing something wrong, well, then the other tentacles have to kind of cover for, the, for that wrong tentacle, as it were. It's, it's a big machine that has to protect itself. And the bigger the machine it becomes, the, the smaller 
the private citizenry becomes itself, that the private, the private business becomes. It has less power to respond to it. So it's, it's uh, a little bit like, uh, I don't know, the, the scale, uh, you know, where you, you lift one scale goes up, the other scale goes down. It's, it's, it's exactly that. It's, you can never have a big private sector and a big, big government. No, you, it's either a big government and a small private sector or a robust, big private sector and a small government. Yeah, I'd even go one step farther, which is this. I'd say there are no non-corrupt governments in the world, but the smaller the government, the corruption within it is contained to have less effect on the citizen. Contained. The bigger the government, the more incentive there is to be corrupt in every area because there's so much more power and there's so much less recourse. So right. you can so much easier get away with the corruption. The Kircher government is exactly what that point that you are just saying. She felt... And I think she felt correctly that she could get away with this corruption. And who are they? Who is anyone to tell me that I can't do this? And, and, and it's a mindset, you understand, of, well, we're the government. And we know what's right. We, we decide. You know, it's like what you were saying, Ari, before about when you were a younger communist, basically. You, your thinking was, I want people to do what I, I feel is good for them to do. And uh, I, I've got a system, and I... I, if they just follow me, then, then things will work. That's the way big government thinks. They, they, you know, who are you to say that there's a different way to go? Who are you, you to be different than, than, our, than our, you know, a juggernaut train that's going the way that we want it to go? Right. You're free to be any kind of individual you want as long as you do things everything my way. That's right. I literally was caught by someone saying that. Yeah. I, I, and I didn't realize the idiocy of it. But that's how... We on the left uh, think, but that's why that's why Kircher thought that she could do this, that that she could squash an investigation of the Iranian government uh, in exchange for this free deal. Because you know, by golly, this free deal is you know it's it's the greater good. You know, that's that's the way big government thinks. Yeah, and they, they, they and they they make noble the notion of working for the government. You see, when I when I hear somebody saying I'm working for the government. When I hear that, I think I think less of them. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are there are very honest and nice people working for uh, the cops and the military, the and, things like that. Well, but but even for the IRS, that we we have some some issues with the IRS. We have some issues with the post office. But these are nice people trying to make a, a living, trying to make a wage. But I, but I don't I don't think more highly of them because they work at the post office of the IRS. I. I I think what a shame, you know, they have to work for the government. It's not not a good thing. But in other countries, especially the socialist countries, working for the government is is almost the highest call of duty and you should revere them to some extent. And they've got this mission and you're going to follow this mission and whether that's uh, you know, a mission of global warming, fighting global warming for example or uh, otherwise engaging in some sort of population control like in China then uh, you got to follow the plan, man. And that's, that's the, the normal thing. And, and, and I, the question I pose is, did Kircher even feel that what she was doing was wrong? That's, that's the amazing thing to me. I, I think had it been a private sector business uh, in doing exactly what she did, I, I think they would know that what they're doing is wrong if, if they actually proceeded with it. But I think Kircher, in a big government setting, they, anything goes with them. 
Yeah, and I am going to add something controversial to this because that's my role here. Yes, yes. And uh, that's not my role, it's just what I do, you know me. Mm. But I'll make a, a, um, a further um, analog, which is what big government looks like to me is mafia. Because what was the end point of what Kirchner did to suppress that investigation? They whacked a guy. Someone was killed, obviously deliberately, to yeah. prevent that. And, and how does mafia look at themselves? What does mafia call themselves? They call themselves the good people, right. ironically. And right. they don't, they don't <coughs> do it with a hint of irony. They call themselves the good people because they look at themselves as providing the things that people can't get from other places, and they streamline the process of things. Right. And... You know, they're facilitating that, And sometimes something happens, and yeah. Johnny has to sleep with the fishes. That's right. That's the, and, and that way, they're facilitators. I remember in The Godfather, I, I love that book, of course. Um, there's a great expression that they would use with each other when there's a problem that they're facing. What do they say? They, they, they say, uh, Antonio, uh, there's a pebble in my shoe. A pebble in my shoe. So, meaning suggesting, you know, like, like it, it, this is an, an annoyance. An I, I can I can live with it, but it's, it gets worse and worse with time. I need to get rid of this pebble. I need to stop for a moment, take off my shoe, shake off, shake it so the pebble falls out of the shoe, and now I continue walking. And that's the way the mafia looked at these people that were in the way. But the socialist governments do the same thing. The exact same things. You you gave a very good example um, offline, Ari, of Hillary Clinton, and I, I do want to explore her in a, in another podcast in another time. But I see that we're do we really have to explore her? Well, it's, uh, uh, yeah, not, I guess not that way. <laughs> but uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, when she wanted to replace the um, the secretary staff, though though the uh, the travel travel office yeah, staff. To tra- yeah, travel office staff, she could have kept them or she could have just replaced them just because it was a matter of her own pleasure. But she was concerned about the public blowback or her perception of what might be the public blowback. So she, with a lot of her, you know, uh, uh, derivative power for, for being the, the, the first lady, uh, fired them not by way of just firing them, which she, she could have done, but she engaged in a massive campaign to eventually put them in prison. She fabricated evidence and framed them and used the evidence in finger quotes that they had committed a crime as the pretext for firing them. And the, the, that evidence then led to their actual prosecutions. Yeah. And yeah. a couple of them faced 50 years in jail if they didn't plead guilty and were being pressured to plead guilty to 10 years in jail. It's, a, and it's, it's it, just, it's, un, it's, and it's such an abomination. It's such, such a historical embarrassment to this country. But this is the point, is that when you have this kind of power, it's ever-growing power, uh, this is the kind of stuff that you can wield. And yes, the expression is absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah, and crushes little people like bugs yeah. with no yeah. and thought. So, you know, be careful what you want, Mr. Liberal. If you, if you want the big government, you can want it, but understand that it comes at a price. And it does not uh, come with the corruption-free environment that you so appreciate living in America today. The reason why we have a, a somewhat corruption-free country, and we do. I mean, there's always a little bit of corruption. But when you think of all the countries in the world, America is one of the least corrupt countries you can think of. And the reason for that is that there is a tremendous amount of checks and balances. 
not just among the Senate and the Congress and the judiciary and the president and the executive office. And, and then, of course, we have the state offices, which in turn give pushback to the federal government and such. But there's also a, a pushback. There's a, a checks and balances between the public sector on the one hand and the private sector on the other. And that's a huge, huge balance of power. Yeah, and there's a recourses within the judicial system, and ideally, not always, but ideally, there's also an engaged and interested media that is always looking for corruption. In this case, I'm talking about the local level. Right. You know, on your local news, if a restaurant is uh, storing meat not at uh, appropriate temperatures and someone finds out, there's going to be a scandal. And That's right. And the local news media in the city will bring that to the people, and they'll be held to pay for those businesses. Well, one very good example of, of this uh, absolute power uh, concern is the FCC rules that uh, Obama wants to promulgate, right? So... This affects a lot of big businesses. It will affect them a lot. It, it will ultimately degrade their ability to provide very good services through the Internet, whether it's Amazon or otherwise. And uh, to resolve a problem that no one is abusing, uh, and it will cost you know, billions of dollars. But other than that, it's a great idea, right? This is, uh, but I bring it up because, I, I, because it reflects this, this balance between the public sector on the one hand and the private sector on the other, Amazon and others will be able to push back on this, these FCC regulations. And I think they will succeed at the end of the day because it's worth it to them to, to fight very hard against the government. And they will succeed. Uh, that, that's the good news of it. But if it were any other country, whether it's Sweden or otherwise, that, that had this kind of capacity to control the Internet, uh, which it doesn't, but, but let's say they did, there would be no discussion. There would be no forum. There would be no you know, council, uh, local council meeting to discuss whether or not to um, allow for controls on the Internet or otherwise. No. The, the, the government would tell you what's what. And also companies like or entities like Amazon would be part of the government. They, everything would be partially or fully nationalized. Right. So there would be an incentive for the private business to comply with whatever the government decree is for uh, favorable treatment and behavior later on. In our country, because the, the separation between government and, and private entity is so distinct and there's a tension there uh, tension's in, this, good. in this balance where tension is good, uh, it creates a situation where government just can't go off the rails and rule things by decree. Um, that's, that's, the major, that's the major problem. Um, if we if we continue to look at government as some sort of savior and that no matter what it does, no matter how big it gets, more importantly, that things will remain even Stephen and it'll always be very pleasant. Uh, I've got some uh, I've got some news for you. It's uh, you, you, you <laughs> talk about year zero thinking. You you have to appreciate where we are and what we've achieved and why we have achieved the things that we've achieved. I'm saying this both as a nation uh, and then also, of course, personally as well. The things that we've achieved, we've achieved as a result of a fantastic rule of law system that is largely uncorrupt. And it's largely as a result of tremendous checks and balances. And all the time that the corruption is exposed, we celebrate a little bit, don't we, Ari? 
Absolutely. Right? We, we say, ah, good, the bad guys were found out. We, we, we like it. Like the, 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 the city of Bell, remember this? Yes. And it, what, a, what a massive corruption scandal was going on in this tiny little town, and they were, to take, they were making salaries of 750000 a year. It was, it was obscene and absurd and all those good things. And, and they got to the point that they, that they thought nothing of it because it had been going on for so long. And it just got the, the, their self salaries were just going up and up all the time. And, and that's the way it works. And, and then finally somebody caught them, and, and that was great. And we all celebrated in our own way. We didn't say, well, this is an emblematic of corruption all, all over the country. Uh, we just said, no, this is, this is the way things work. Yeah. And I want to make a point to liberals out there, because liberals will see when corruption is exposed when the media does its job, and ideally it is, and they'll see this corruption exposed, and then they will assume or extrapolate that corruption must be ubiquitous. And they fail to see that in cases like that, the beauty of it is in, in, the, in that it garners our attention is because it's rare. That's right. And thus, when exposed, it shocks us and horrifies us. And the liberal so often makes the mistake because in the day-in-day-out news cycles and flow of news, they see so much of it. No, they're seeing those little pockets of corruption exposed day by day, right. but that doesn't mean the whole system is rigged against them. Right. They a lot of times extrapolate that everything must be be rigged because they see it exposed, and it's right. also a sign that we live in a large country with a lot of people. Well, the perfect analogy to that, by the way, is is the... Uh, the alleged racist killings by white cops of black people. And, uh, you Trey know... Vaughn, Michael Trey, Brown, all those guys. I mean, they're still trying they're to find right. that... They're, they're still trying to find the unicorn of an actual racist white cop killing of a black person. Good luck on that. They still haven't found it. You would think they would find at least one in this entire country in the past, say, 10 years. No, 20 years. How about that? Since Rodney King. Since Rodney King. Basically. And even then, that was, it was an issue whether it was racist at all. But, but that's another story. I mean, really, truly, uh, since Rodney King's fair enough, but let's make the assumption that it was racist, which I don't think it was. That it's, they're still searching for it. And when they do find something, they, they have to twi- twist it to make it a white Hispanic and, and all the things that uh, the evidence doesn't jibe at all and, and, and everyone gets indignant about it. But the additional mistake is the mistake that you just made, is that, uh, that not that you made, uh, that you pointed out which is that somehow it's emblematic and it's uh, omnipresent throughout all of America, that it's happening daily. And hence, you know, Black Lives Matter and... Uh, hands up, I, don't shoot. Hands up, as, as if this is happening on a daily basis. Well, my, by golly, if it's happening on a daily basis, couldn't you find us better examples than, than Trayvon Martin or, or the, 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 the young punk in... Mike Brown. Mike Brown, yeah. who was clearly you know, attacking the officer and the officer had no choice and you, there's no history of him having any racist sentiment whatsoever. Couldn't you find one guy who was, let's say, a member of the KKK secretly or something like that and written diaries about how he wanted to kill black people and then he goes and kills himself a, a black person? Don't you think you could find one such person? <laughs> but, but no, no. Anyway, this is, this is emblematic of how non-corrupt, how non-racist this country is. And how non-uselessly uh, violent the police are right. on a daily basis. Right. But you, but you know what? You want to find where you can get racism? 
you want to find out where you can get corruption, go to a socialist country. Go to a country where the government has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. That's where you'll find the unicorn that you're looking for here. My friends, this is Brooke Lurie. This has been the Brooke Lurie Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you real soon.